The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. We're going to kick things off as we do every day with our afternoon update, uh, catching you up on all that has happened so far today. Neve Maher is with me, Commercial Creative Director with Journal Media, and Brian Mahan, Political Correspondent with the Irish Daily Mail. Um, the RTE payment scandal roller coaster continues, Brian. Yes, on and on and on and on it goes. It does feel like that, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. You, you kind of get exhausted with it after a while. Uh, I mean, I guess the interesting thing about the report today is is it's just the unredacted report. It, this is some, so remind for people yeah. who haven't been yes. tuned in. So, so what 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 have we learned today? This is the RT Toy Show musical report, uh, and we've basically when the report originally came out, it was redacted. We didn't know who was speaking to who and who was backstabbing who or whatever, <laughs> and now. Uh, after much political pressure and media pressure, RT have published a report with the names in it. And I think it illustrates uh, a frustration um, within, I guess, government and within the wider media. It's like, they could have just done this the first time. Why did they have to be bullied into doing this? And we are, re- we are now re-reporting <laughs> the issues again. But I think the most interesting thing is is uh, Moya Doherty saying, who was the chair of the board, saying she, uh, she thought she had at least implicit sign-off from the board. And then you had multiple other members of the board saying, we never gave sign off to that. And now we have names to go with that, Robert Short and others. So so the the, the narrative has been up until now, Neve, that uh, this is kind of a solo run uh, uh, from the kind of the management side of the house. And, you know, the proper kind of corporate governance um, uh, structures were not followed. Uh, they were in place. Well, we assume they were in place, but they were not followed uh, practices and procedures. And the board didn't have the oversight that they should have had. Uh, the kind of a slight muddying of the waters there today. So Moya Darty kind of is claiming well, there was oversight from the board. We just didn't vote because there was kind of unanimity. But as Brian says, members of the board saying, well, hold on now. Yeah. I don't remember actually putting my hand up and saying, yeah, this is a good idea. Go for it. This is the thing. And exactly like Brian said, it's it's almost like a re-report. So I was reading back on the report as it originally came out. And then today, the the unredacted version, as it were, that Grant Thornton report found. And I suppose what Moya Doherty is saying is that there was, and it was formally approved, but the board members are saying, you know, this came to us um, as essentially, you know, a fait accompli. It was a thing that had already happened or had been decided before it came to them and before they approved of it. So th- it's not a huge amount and there's still a little bit of passing the, the book, I think, in mm. terms of, you know, what we know now as opposed to what was known. And <laughs> it doesn't explain, I think, in a way that people are, you know, oh, well, that solved it now. Now we understand everything that's happened. I think more so, actually, I was thinking about it today. Have you ever watched The Apprentice? Yes. So, you know, mob mentality that happens in The Apprentice when basically it's a group of people, all very skilled. They all are very accomplished. They come together and then all of a sudden they're pitching. They're all psychotic in their own way, though. Well, yeah, but sure. I mean, on The Apprentice. On The Apprentice. Exactly. Not Not the the RD board. board, Yes. Or the producers who came up with this show. Exactly. (laughs) But then the next thing you know, they're pitching a chocolate cheesecake to a health brand. So I feel like the toy show (laughs) musical is like that. It started off as an idea for producers of the 
Late Late Show and, and a good idea when you think about it on paper because it was playing into, you know, the massive success that is the toy show. But one thing led to another. And now here we are, essentially people saying it wasn't approved, it was approved. There are emails that date back to November 2021. You know, the convention centre itself, a massive amount of money went into putting that, to booking that for this period of time. Mm. And those emails date back, which we saw through the report. So again, it's not bringing, it's not bringing an end to what happened. If anything, it's just kind of saying that we didn't really know what was going on, but along the way, this was decided upon. Uh, so this might seem like an incongruous question to ask, given I, I've kicked off a, a national radio show with this topic of conversation. Do people care anymore? Do people care? People care about the TV licence. We might talk about that in a moment. Yeah. But do people care about Grant Thornton reports and whose names were redacted and what role Moya Doherty had? I think people still care because now is the time that people are being expected to renew their TV licenses. So I think people do care because when we look at the shortfall of people who paid for their TV licenses last year, and then we look at the amount that that cost to go through the courts, which was two million, Mm. that's the amount that the Toy Show musical lost. So I think people do still care. People don't care necessarily about the show. They didn't care at the time. That's why they didn't go see it. Mm. Let's be honest. So Brian, in terms of the television license, Sinn Féin of Emotion today, I think, um, is it today or tomorrow? Anyway. Debated today, uh, vote tomorrow to abolish the TV license fee, replace it with exchequer funding, and this is the kicker an amnesty for people who haven't paid it. Yeah, which is uh, new information that they came out yesterday. Pierre Starty and Thomas Gould, a Cork based TD, said, you know, it's the right thing to do. It's the fair thing to do. And they... they, they <laughs> fair to the rest of us schmucks who paid our TV licence. This is precisely the point that Leo Varadkar uh, made to the Irish Daily Mail and we had on the front page this morning. And it was reiterated by Pascal Donoghue uh, earlier today. And he said, if this is what change looks like from Sinn Féin, you know, is that the best they've got? Would you feel aggrieved? Maybe, actually, sorry, Neve. Would you feel aggrieved? Maybe you're not paying your TV licence. Maybe you're one of those protesters. I did pay my TV licence last year. Um, I'm a stickler for that because they were sending me lots of emails about it as well, to be honest with you. I do think it needs to change. I do understand where pe- why people are aggrieved by it. You know, I saw... But an uh, amnesty for people who didn't pay. But uh, I know... I, I, I want a €160 Euro tax credit. Well, <laughs> I want rarely gets, let's be honest. But I think if you look at that, an amnesty, like look back at what happened with the water charges as well, which was an absolute mess up in terms of people you know, getting the money back as well. So I suppose the problem is, is that the people who are getting the amnesty, the people who then paid are going to come up in arms and say, hold on a second, that's not fair. Why did we pay? So I think regardless, it's a mess. And regardless, it's not going to be solved by by one TD saying, I think this is the, the resolution to it. And at the moment, people, you know, are needing to pay now. So this isn't going to be coming around in, in this year or next year, I would say. We've seen, Brian, like certain members of the judiciary already offering an effective amnesty, kicking these cases out of court. Yeah, uh, but I think to come back to, to the point uh, there earlier about kind of the water charges, you know, Pierce already repeated the, the, the analogy to the water charges on multiple occasions yesterday. And there is a view within government and within, you know, the corridors of Leinster House that Sinn Féin are panicking a little bit. They're, they've slipped in the polls and they're looking for a populist kind of stick to beat the government with. And kind of coming out with saying, A, we're going to get rid of the TV licence fee so no one will have that little tax every year. It'll come directly out of the Exchequer. But number two, give an amnesty. And then they can go and say, oh, well, the government is like prosecuting all these poor, poor, poor people who, who can't pay their TV licence fee. The government doesn't think that that's going to stick. And they think that it's a panicked move from Sinn Féin. Uh- we will be discussing this again. I'm sure uh, later in the show we'll be discussing it again, probably later in the week, because, like we say, it's a roller coaster and it uh, 
shows no sign of ending. Um, one in five Britons say they've never been to an art gallery because they're too posh. And now I love this story. We're actually going to chat about this later in the show. Joe Mangan is going to be joining me. Um, do you regularly go to art galleries, Neve? No, I don't. Because they're too posh? Not because they're too posh, no. But I, I did find this an interesting story. Uh, 14% said that they would struggle to understand the art that was on offer from the galleries. That's mm-hmm. what I thought. And it actually reminded me, I studied art history in school and it brought me back to my days of going on school trips to art galleries. And I think it's changed now because at the time, I do remember the trips being slightly... Um, strict, like there was a lot of hushing. I I thought that at the time when you were in a gallery, you needed to, you know, not be loud. It didn't feel like a place where we as children at the time were accepted. So as I came into adulthood, I don't know whether I brought that baggage with me, but they've never been a place that I've thought of, you know what, I really want to go. And the thing is, it's it's upsetting because when you think about it, it's, it's the great and only entry point that a lot of people have to art. And I think if you look around at, at art galleries in Dublin, I, I know it's a bit Dublin centric, but most of the galleries are free for entry. Yes. The National Gallery mm-hmm. of Ireland is free. The Hugh Lane Gallery is free. Irish Museum of Modern Art is free. The Gallery of Photography in Temple Bar is free as well. Um, so I do think that there's a strange stuffiness that can be attached to art galleries that I, I they think attach it themselves. Do they? They do. They attach it themselves. And this mm-hmm. is my issue, Brian. I want to read mm-hmm. this to you. Right? There's actually a, the, the International Art English academics came up with this term about ten years ago. So uh, two academics in particular in the state to use it to describe the language that artists themselves use to describe their installations. And they gave this as an example. So this is describing an art installation that consisted of several small pink skulls with mirrors placed around them. The artist brings the viewer face to face with their own preconceived hierarchy of cultural values and assumptions of artistic worth. Each mirror imaginatively propels its viewer forward into the seemingly infinite progression of possible reproductions that the artist's practice engenders, while simultaneously pulling them backwards in a quest for the original source or referent that underlines the artist's oeuvre. Well, See, this is this is why people think art galleries are too bad. There should just be a big sign up that says pretty paintings inside. But it's, it's all this assumed knowledge, right? You know, like, you can't just assume that the average Joe Soap who might walk in on a, with the family or with a school trip or on a date is going to understand what in God's name these words mean. I was actually at um, the Karl Marx Museum over in, a, in outside Luxembourg there a couple of months ago. And I'm into history and I'm into politics. And I had an baldy of which way they were supposed to be sending me around the thing, around the, the museum. And it made no sense to me. And the person I was with at the time, who wouldn't be into history and politics, just got bored within 15 or 20 minutes because it wasn't articulate to them in a very simple way. What are you supposed to be learning here or be interested in? Yeah. Uh, somebody's texted in on it uh, uh, Austin and Fermoy says Kieran, it's a pity art galleries are seen as posh because my brother and I went to the Uffizi galleries in Florence hung over to within an inch of our lives we rocked up at about 2pm and moved around as gently as we could which was easy as it was a Tuesday in the middle of January there wasn't a sinner there unusual if you've queued hours to get in there during the summer our clotted blood was rejuvenated by the ethereal wonder of Sandra Botticelli and life flowed again how about that even the drunks got posh in the end and it was a great day well so says Austin. See, I, I, it's artists who make it inaccessible. I think they like the idea. Some artists, I'm painting them all with a kind of a broad brush here. There you go. Uh, yeah. To use an artistic pun. Um, but um, I think they like the idea that they kind of raise their art to the level of the kind of the intellectual and, and make it kind of exclusive yeah. by the, kind of attaching the, this language the to thing, it. But the thing also is like, if you've been to the National Gallery or whatever, like, even if you don't really understand what's going on, 
It's a really nice building. It's really nice and airy. It is, if you're yeah. an adult, it is nice and, and quiet. And, and it, pretty, it's nice and chill. And there's pretty paintings yeah. in there. It's hard to complain, really, you know. I'm sure those pink skulls with the mirrors looked kind of cool. But that's <laughs> you know? it. I mean, how long pink do you stand... Pink skulls looks cool. How long do you stand looking at it? That's a thing that I've always found when I've been in an art gallery. You want to look at the piece for long enough to feel like you've absorbed what it's meant to be saying, but at the same time, you don't have a monkey's uncle about what exactly no, it's meant to be saying. you want to look at the piece for as long as it takes for other people in the gallery not to think you're a Philistine. That's literally it's all show. It's all show. It's like, it always reminds me, of, you know the Anthony Bourdain thing about food? I don't care where your food come from, came from or how you cooked it. I only care if it tastes nice. Yeah, well that's it. A snobbery can be attached to it but when you look at famous artists throughout history as well, when you look at Pollock or Andy Warhol, you know, or Picasso even, they were newcomers at one point into the art world and they were completely shunned. So I say, go to the galleries. Artists don't use that language, Kieran. Arts administrators, gallery curators, and journalists use that language. Why aren't you criticizing engineering publications for dry technical language or sports journalism for its use of boring cliche? <laughs> well, I rely on an awful lot yeah. of cliche myself the here, so I thing, can't do that. The only thing I was going to say is, like, I'm a political correspondent. It's my job to translate that jargon. And we can, in, in politics, kind of talk completely inside baseball and then you go home and talk to your mates you talk to the old boy in the pub and they haven't a clue yeah. about what you're talking about and you have to go what am I actually trying to say here and it maybe would not kill some museums to think what does the average punter need here in five words I know yeah the description gives the illusion of expensiveness is what one listener points out As somebody else says to break down the pretentiousness of art and read the Turner Prize winner Grayson Perry's book Playing to the Gallery and this listener says art gallery or museum visit strategy here we go given to me by an art historian in a pub. Maximum two hours per visit, no more than that. Pick an artist and see their work only purposefully. Other works seen accidentally as you search for your target piece are seen as a bonus. My artist is and was Vermeer. There are only 34 pieces in the world and visiting them has resulted in vacations in very cool locations in the last 10 years. I've one left to see... But it's in Buckingham Palace. Being an Irishman of a certain age, I can't bring myself to go there yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. 87 106 We might talk about uh, international art English. If anybody wants to interpret that for me as well, uh, the description of the pink skulls with the mirrors, um, please uh, do get in touch. Um, have either of you had pancakes yet? No. no. What? Not yet. 20 past four. I know, yeah. Have a Pancake Tuesday. I hope the husband is working on it now before I get home, to be honest with you. But, uh, made from scratch? Well, made from whatever is in the house. I think I might have to pick up some of the ingredients. I was saying this to Brian yeah. before. I know that the history of Pancake Tuesday is supposed to be getting rid of everything in, you know, your pantry. Sorry, the is that it? Well... There's a couple of different things. The, the first original, I did my research, the first Pancake Tuesday was in 1445, would you believe? Okay. And apparently uh, it was Shrove Tuesday, which is obviously to do with uh, Christianity. And apparently there was a lady who was getting ready for mass, but she heard the bells and she was making the pancakes and she made too many pancakes. So she brought them to church and that was the beginning of Pancake Tuesday. Wow, I like that story. Well, I we don't, don't know if it's true it's or not. Absolutely not. I would say do but, not trust the facts on that one. But, you know, I, I may have I like seen it, it on Reddit. <laughs> I, I, have, I have a less fancy story. Which okay, is cool. When I came up to college, you know, I'd always loved pancakes. Pancake Tuesday would have made them at home. And I came to college and I had some quite posh friends and they kept talking about going to get a crepe. And I swear for about five or six years, I didn't have the heart to be able to ask what's the difference between a crepe and a pancake. And they're, they're the exact same, right? The, uh, yeah, I think they're the exact same. <laughs> now we're all Philistines. Oh, Brian, we were looking at those Vermeers for long enough that people thought we were posh and now you've exposed me as a Philistine. Yeah, I think they're Brian exactly from Longford, the same. So, you know. 
I think they're the same. But I did also look at pancake flipping and how, I don't know, do you guys flip your pancakes? Are you good at oh, it? Oh God, you got to flip, yeah. yeah. Gotta have to try a flip. So the Guinness World Record, if anybody wants to try it 140 times in a minute, somebody holds the record for that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. There's a challenge. challenge. If anybody listening <laughs> right between now and seven o'clock wants to try that, 140 flips in a minute. Let's see. We'll see if we can get close to it. Yeah, Text in your results, but I want kind of video evidence. You've got a WhatsApp in video evidence. I'll say if we're going to send it to the Guinness Book of Records and an Australian Brad Jolly has the record at the All moment. All right. Let's so smash that record. 087 1400 for those videos. Sweet or savoury pancake? Sweet. Oh, sweet. Yeah, just lemon and sugar. Keep it simple. Oh, yeah, your opinions are wrong. Neve Mark, <laughs> Commercial Creative Director with Journal Media, Brian Mahan, Political Correspondent with the Irish Daily Mail. Listen, thanks a million, uh, both of you, for joining me. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.